thought about doing something for Mother's Day specially, but I just, what I do is I go with what's inside of me, and I really have a sense that we need to finish this, this series, because there's something that we're going to get into that is extremely important, although this is, of course, also. Genesis 14, we're going to pick up in <clears throat> verse 18. We've talked about this before, given the background of it. <clears throat> that uh, Abraham, who's Abram at the time, his nephew Lot has been captured by a king who's come down and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, or, or conquered them, <clears throat> taken their possessions and their families away from them back into Assyria. And now Abram finds out that his nephew Lot has been taken along with his family. And he, with only a little over 300 men, goes up and defeats this king and brings back all that's been taken. The property, the possessions, the people, brings them back. And on the way back, verse 18 says, he meets a man named Melchizedek. It says he's king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine. And it tells us who he is. He's the priest of the God Most High. He represents the God Most High in this situation. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave a tithe, or a tenth, of all. What we talked about here is, this is in all likelihood a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. This is a priest that represented God to Abram in this situation. His name is Melchizedek, which in Hebrew means king of righteousness. And he's identified as the king of Salem, which is the Hebrew word shalom or peace. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And of course, that's a name that's given to Jesus, to the Christ. And he comes and he reveals to Abram that he is the priest or the representative of the God Most High. And then he blessed Abraham Say, blessed be Abraham, who belongs to the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So this priest is revealing to Abram, who has just had a tremendous victory, who is now even more prosperous, more blessed than he has been already. And this priest reveals to him that he represents the Most High God. And that he is the one who has delivered all you, you from all of your enemies, and he has come to bless you. Abraham, upon the revelation of God as the Most High God, and upon the revelation that God was the one who has delivered him, God is the one who has protected him, and on the revelation that God is the one who has provided everything he has, his response was to take a tenth of what he had just received and give that back to the priest who represents the Most High God. And this is the origin in the Bible of the principle of the tithe. And that's what we've been talking about. We spent a lot of time last year at the end talking about the two different kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, which is based on God's principles, which are basically represent God. And then we saw that Satan has come in, in Genesis 3, and he came in, he can't create his own principles, but what he could do was pervert the principles that God had established his kingdom on. And the way he perverted them was to take the same principles, and instead of operating them for the benefit of God and with their eyes on God, he got them to begin to look at themselves and to operate the principles for their own benefit, which is in reality what he had done in heaven, which is why he was forcibly evicted. And we've seen that we were raised then in a world that's saturated with 
indoctrinated with, these principles, these upside down or backwards or perverted principles to the point that they're so common to us that they're what seems normal. And when we open our Bible or we hear messages and discover what the Word of God says, God's kingdom operates on, those principles seem strange and foreign to us, but the reality is that's what the truth is. What we've been taught, what we've been raised in, what we practiced all our lives until we came to Christ was really a lie. And the proof of it is just to look at the world today. Look at how, oh, just go back to Genesis. Look at how well that first man and woman did once they adopted those principles. They became afraid, they became ashamed, and they hid from God. And that's what the world's been doing ever since based on those principles. We spend time going over the principles of the kingdom of God and the perverted principles that we've learned to operate in. And we've came down to the principle of sowing and reaping. And then from that, we've looked at this principle of tithing. We've examined, we've examined the principle of tithing itself, the purpose behind tithing. We've started, first of all, we start out by seeing what it's not because we have attitudes about it very often when we come to church. We first hear about it. So many Christians see it as a tax. It's a tax that's being imposed on me. It's the price to be a Christian is I've got to give God 10% of what I receive. Now, that's what the government does. The government taxes us. And when they trust us so much, they take it out of your pay before you get it. <clears throat> that's what a tax is. But God gives it all to you, entrusts it all to you, so that you can learn to take that first 10% and worship Him back with it. We saw that the principle of the tithe is like the principle of the tree in the garden. The tree, the one tree God said they could not eat of. God put them in the garden, He blessed them, He made them charge of everything, He entrusted it all to them, and yet they didn't own anything. God owns it all. But there was one tree they couldn't eat of, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there are a number of purposes for that tree, but we saw that one of the purposes of that tree was to daily remind them that everything that they had in their hands, everything that they had to enjoy, first of all, came from God, and secondly, they did not own any of it. It was entrusted into their care and their keeping in order to do what they were responsible to do. And that tree was a reminder to them. God let them have everything else to enjoy, but the tree was the reminder. And we saw that in the same way the tithe is like that. Because it's so easy for us to talk about what my money, my possessions, my, what I've accomplished, I've done this, I've done that. You haven't even breathed that God hasn't given you that breath. Your heart didn't beat one beat that God didn't give you that beat. We have done nothing on our own. Everything we've done, everything we've achieved, everything we have, is completely a gift by God's grace to us. And all God asks is that we recognize that, honor Him with it, and respect it, and God will entrust you with all kinds of things because they won't take you away from Him. So we saw the principle of the tithe. Then we saw that the tithe has to do with much more than that. It's a hard attitude. It's an honoring of God. And we ended up the last time that we shared about this in Malachi, and we saw that the tithe is holy. We talked about what holy means in the Bible. Holy means that God has chosen something to be His own. And has, having chosen it to be His own, He set it apart. 
to be devoted just to Him. But see, without learning these different principles, we've been raised in this principle of the world to think that everybody's trying to take from me what's mine. And we discovered that over in the kingdom of God, none of it's mine. It's all His that He's entrusted to me. But if we approach this from the idea that we've been indoctrinated with the world, the question is always, how much do I have to give? Like, how many taxes, what are the taxes i got to pay this year? What's God trying to get from me? And when that's our attitude, there's not a heart of honoring God. But when you recognize what the Bible says, that the, what, what God asks for back is holy because it's devoted to His purposes, is devoted to Him. And we ended up by Malachi 3 where God's talking to, a, to, a, to basically the believers at that time, the Jews at that time, who outwardly were kind of like we are today, worshiping God, doing everything outwardly correct. But inside of them there were attitudes and inside of them they had drifted away into things very much like I'm concerned that the church today has also. And God addressed some of those issues in Malachi. begins by talking about the attitude about what you gave. Not just how much we give, but the attitude with which we give it. And he says you, that you bring, to, you bring offerings, but they're the lame, they're the weak, they're the diseased. In other words, you're giving to me the worst you have, the leftovers. He says you would even do that to the governor. You wouldn't even do that to somebody who you respected highly. And yet, it's a, see, what God's saying there is what we give and the way we give it is a direct reflection of the attitude that we have towards God himself. And that's the issue. The issue isn't the 10%. The issue isn't, the issue isn't all the other things we make it to be. The issue is the attitude of our heart towards God we're going to talk about today is to deal with a question that, that many of you may have heard, you may have, some of you may have had, and that's, yes, Pastor, but everything you've been talking about is all out of the Old Testament. And it's the Old Testament for a reason, because it's old. <laughs> we have a New Testament. And in the New Testament, we have a new covenant with God. And in the New Testament, the law is passed away and the tithe was under the law. So therefore, we don't have to tithe the way they did in the Old Testament. Well, we're going to take a look at that today. Is tithing in the New Testament? Is tithing something that the church needs to be doing today? Well, I guess you already know the answer I'm going to tell you. But I'm going to spend this time sharing with you how we get there. All right. There are really two basic reasons that I've heard of this teaching that, that the tithing is not for the church today. And the first is basically that, well, it's under the law and the law has passed away. So that assumes, first of all, that tithing is based on the law. Now, it was included in the law. If you go through the first five books of the Bible, if you go through especially Exodus, and if you look in, in, in Numbers, and then you look in Deuteronomy, you're going to find there were times that they were required to tithe. There was a tithe that was given to support the priesthood, because the priesthood was holy. The priesthood was set apart from, for God. They were not given some other means of supporting themselves, but they were 
holy again. They were a tribe, the tribe of Levi, that God had put his hand on and says, they're mine. And their lives and everything they have is to be dedicated to serving me, to worshiping me, and to representing me to the rest of the people. And therefore God said, bring the tithe into the storehouse. Bring the tithe in. And that tithe is first of all going to be used as my means of supporting those who are holy to me, who are representing me to you, while you are out earning your own livelihood. There were several other tithes that were required from time to time. There was one that was required, if I remember correctly, every three years or so, and that was to provide also a means for benefiting the widows and the orphans and providing for the needs of people that couldn't support themselves. The point is this, yes, the tithe does appear under the law. But we just looked in Genesis chapter 14, which is before the law was ever given, And the tithe starts before the law. In Genesis 28, Jacob, on his way way to to having left, having had to leave home, on his way to Laban's, he has an encounter with God and he makes a vow before God that I will give to you a tithe of everything that you give me. That was well before the law was ever instituted. So it's not a case that the tithe was created under the law and therefore the law has passed away so we don't need a tithe. The, the tithing was incorporated into the law but it existed well before the law. It existed well before the law. All right. Matthew 15, let's turn there. It'll be a little teachy this morning, but that's okay. That gives us understanding. And again, some of you are coming from very different backgrounds, very different understandings. Some of you may not even know what I'm talking about, and that's okay. Of course, Matthew 5 is here in what's well known as the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which was actually not a sermon to the crowd. It was a, it was a teaching lesson to His disciples. Verse 17, let's start there. Jesus said, Do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. I didn't come to destroy it, but fulfill it. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth has passed away, not one jot or one tittle, which are the smallest, that's like saying not one dot of an I or cross of a T, shall by any means pass away from the law until it is all fulfilled. So we have this misunderstanding out there that under the New Testament, the law was done away with, and therefore we don't ever have to fulfill anything that's under the law. Now understand, the law means a lot. There's the Ten Commandments. That's the root of the law. But then the, 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 the rabbis and the Jewish leaders added about 660-some other requirements to those Ten Commandments. And that also got incorporated into the law. But the law Jesus is talking about is the law given by, Mo, given by God to Moses on the mountain. And Jesus is saying that that law wasn't done away with. He said, I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it. Now let's go over... And go to Hebrews chapter 8.
Now, what's happening in Hebrews? Hebrews is a letter written by whoever wrote it. Paul, it was the Holy Spirit that wrote it. It's a letter written to Jewish Christians who under the persecution of the first century were scattered out of Jerusalem. And most of them went up into a place called the Dispersion. They went up into, into Asia Minor, which is where Turkey is, which was where Paul eventually went up and started, did his initial missionary journeys. What happened is they're separated from the mother church, from the source of the teaching of the apostles, and other doctrines are beginning to filter in. There were a group of people that went around called Judaizers, and they're bringing, trying to bring in, after the gospel is preached, they're trying to bring into the Jewish believers an understanding that, yes, you've got to believe in Christ to be saved, but you've got to also keep all the requirements of the law also. And so they were, this letter was written because what was happening is these Jewish believers were beginning to drift away from putting their trust in Christ and going back to picking up some of the old, old practices, even including circumcision. Now here's the difference. Understand this. The doctrine of salvation by grace, by faith in Christ, is based on what you put your trust in. Is your trust to be right before God in how good you've been and how faithful you've been? Or is your trust in your standing before God in the fact that you know you can't be good enough but Jesus died to pay for your sins and by putting your faith in what He did, God takes His righteousness and attributes that to you. And that's what the gospel says our faith is to be in. But as Ephesians 2 says, that we're saved by grace, we are His workmanship. His work in us by receiving Christ, but we're saved by His workmanship unto good works. So it's not just, hey God, you know, here I am, do your job in me. And then I can just sit and do what I want to do. Because now there's a responsibility on my part to begin to act, or as Paul says, put on the Christ that I've now received. And so there's a part that I have to play. The question is, what is your trust in? So there's some believers out there that, that believe that when you come to Christ, you, 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 you receive Christ by faith, but therefore the requirements of the Ten Commandments, all those requirements are gone because it's now just fulfilled in this salvation that I have. No, we still have a responsibility to act right before God. But my confidence in standing before God is not in how good a job I do with that. My salvation is not based on how good a job I am at being faithful to Him. My salvation is based on the fact that 34 years ago I put my trust in Christ and have continued my trust in Christ. But if I haven't grown up in 34 years at all, and there's some days I wonder, <laughs> then that gives you a question about what really has happened on the inside of me. And that's what the book of James is about. And so the issue is this, is, is what is your trust in for your standing before God? 
So Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not to do away with it. All right, Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 8. That's right, I got off into the explanation of who this letter was written to. Let's pick up in verse 6. Now what he's doing is he's comparing Christ and the new covenant with the old covenant under the law. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry in as much, talking about Christ, as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. For if that first covenant was faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. But finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So we have a new covenant, and we'll see a little later on. We are of that house of Israel. And with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them out by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That covenant is the covenant he made with them through Moses when he led them out of Egypt into the wilderness. And this is the covenant we'll make of the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. Notice what he doesn't say. Under this new covenant, they can just do what they want to do. Whatever's in their mind to do, they can do. Whatever's in their heart to do, they can do. That's not what it says. He says, under the new covenant, I will take my law. I guess it wasn't thrown away, was it? I will take my law, and now, as Paul says elsewhere, instead of having it written in stone tablets the way it was given to Moses on the top of the mountain. Instead, I'm going to take my law now and write it in your minds and write it in your hearts. So the only difference isn't whether it's a different law or not. The difference is where it's now written. So we have this attitude, I think, as Christians in this generation that because we're saved, because we're filled with the Holy Ghost, that means, you know, we, you know, we can just, you know, we can't sin. There's teaching out there, you can't sin. There is. That once you come to Christ, grace means you basically can't sin. You've got to throw out so much of the Bible. Then there's teaching out there that said, well, you can sin in the flesh, but you can't sin in the spirit. Well, what about, I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, 1, which says, purify yourself in spirit and in, in your flesh. These are dangerous doctrines that are out there because they encourage Christians to just let their flesh go and do whatever they want to do. I wouldn't plan to getting into this this morning at all, but we're here. No, God says, I'm going to take my law. Actually, it was easier if the law was written out somewhere else because if you didn't see it, you didn't know it. But he says, I'm going to take it and write it in your heart. Now, in 2 Corinthians, I think it is, Paul says, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit of the what law gives life. So it's not going away. It's just written in a different place. And the place it's been written is in your heart. Amen. Romans chapter one, 8 verse 1 says, uh, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. 
There's a law that's in the Spirit of Christ. It's been written in your hearts. So God's standard in the New Testament isn't that we have to obey a bunch of rules that are in your Bible. You've got to open up and say, what do I have to do today? The, the waste God wrote His laws is in your conscience. That's why Paul says in several places, I think it's three, he says, because one of the issues in the church at that day, especially the, new, the church in, in, in Asia and over in Greece, was what do you do? You get people that, you know, they were, they were worshipers of Diana, of different idols, and in those temples they would have sacrifices of animals. They would sacrifice the animals, and they would offer those animals as sacrifices to some, some idol. Well, when they were done with the meat, they made money off of it. They sold it in the market. So one of the questions that was of concern in that day and age was if you were a Christian and you went to someone's house and you, uh, you know, you're, they're going to serve you a nice steak. I've got to be careful or I might lose some of you at this point. they serve you a nice steak. Were you obligated to find out where they got that steak? Did that steak ultimately come from a sacrifice made at the temple to a pagan god? And Paul says... I know that my salvation in standing before God is not based on what I eat and don't eat. But he says, if my brother sitting next to me turns to me and asks me, do you suppose it's okay to eat that? They may have been sacrificed to an idol. In other words, if he doesn't understand what I understand. In other words, if eating that meat is going to cause him to violate his, listen to this carefully, violate his conscience, even though I know with my experience and my, my revelation from Christ that that obligation isn't really given by Christ, yet it will cause him to violate his conscience, then I will have led him to commit sin. That means sin in the New Testament is violating your conscience. Because God's written His law in your heart. Well, what about this young brother who said, you know, I don't know whether it's okay to eat this meat, and yet Paul knows it doesn't really matter? The point is, this man will cross a line that he believes is wrong. And Paul says, if I lead him to do that, I'm leading him into sin. Therefore, Paul says, I will govern my, I will restrict my freedoms. See, we have so much in the church today trying to enjoy and celebrate their freedoms and don't realize the responsibility that goes with that for one another. Because again, most of us are still living our lives over here for ourselves and what we're getting out of it. Paul learned to live in the kingdom of God, which is based on what is God getting out of this and what are my brothers and sisters, how is it affecting them? So the law hasn't been passed away. The law has now been written in our hearts. Say, so, well, what if, my, what if my conscience is wrong? Then you need to get into the book and find out what the book says. 
You need to renew your mind. You need to learn to think the way God thinks. That's what we're learning on Wednesday nights, how to renew our mind. All right. Getting quiet in here. Back in verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God. Notice it's a possessive pronoun. I will be their God. I will be a God that belongs to them, and they shall be my people. That means they shall be a people that belong to me. We want God to belong to us. But the other side of this covenant is that we also belong to Him. None of you shall teach his neighbor, saying, None of his brothers shall say, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. And I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Oh, thank you, Lord. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no, no more. In that, in, in that, he says, a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. All right. Let's go to Hebrews 7. The law is not passed away, but it's, in, excuse me, the tithe was included in the law. Well, I'm going to skip that part. Let's go on. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Start in verse 3. The verse he said before that, well, let's go back, let's go back to verse 1. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, the Galatians were a church that was, um, that, again, it was the same kind of situation. These were a church of, of Gentile believers, but they were also getting drifted back into entrusting in their works for their salvation. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched, bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among those among you as crucified. This only I want you to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? The, receiving the Spirit is how they were born again. And that's how you were born again. What makes you alive unto God is God put His Spirit in you and that makes you alive unto God. And Paul is saying, how did you receive that Spirit? Because you did all the right things and said all the right words? No, you received Him by faith. So he's talking about this is how you were saved. Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made, being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So, what he's saying here is the doctrine that we are saved... And if we went to Romans 4, you'd see this really laid out clearly. The doctrine that you are saved by faith in God's Word is rooted in what Abraham did. Abraham believed God's promise, and we've studied this before. Abraham, when God came to him to enter into a covenant, Abraham was 75 years old. He had no son, he had no children of his own body and Sarah's wife Sarah's body. We discover a little later on, not only have they had no children, 
they're now too old, and she's been barren all along anyway. So there's three strikes against him. He's too old, she's too old, and she couldn't do it, have a child anyway. God comes to them and says to them, in chapter Genesis chapter 15, God's entering in, into a covenant with Abram. We've talked about this before. God chose to have a people of his own. And he didn't choose an existing people. He chose a man. And that's very often how God works. He chose a man, brought him out of a pagan society, and God pulls him aside and says, I want to have a special relationship with you called a covenant relationship. And through you, I want to bring forth a nation of people and nations of people that I have this special covenant relationship also. And that way you'll be mine. You'll be holy. You'll belong to me out of all the other peoples on the earth. But it started with a man. And isn't it interesting? God chose a man and a woman who couldn't produce one child themselves to form a nation or nations out of them. And Abram got a hold of the vision, and of course, you know the story, they tried to help God out and produced Ishmael through his wife's servant, Hagar. And God says, no, 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 when they brought Ishmael to him and says, you know, see what we did? And God says, no, I'm not going to base it on anything you've done. It's going to be entirely based on what I've done. And by the way, he still operates that way today. But what God required of them is that they trust his word. Take him at their, his word and believe that God's word is going to come about. Even to the point in Genesis 22 where God tests him once Isaac's born, because 25 years later, once God, he trusted him, Isaac's born. And this is the child of the promise. And Isaac is born, and so this is what he's referring to here. It was by faith in God's promise that God would give them a child. God considered that faith the same as if Abraham was righteous in himself. And they believed God, and it was accounted to him unto righteousness. It's again, you'll see it in Romans 4. We get there a little later on. And that's the example. Because what God was doing was entering into a covenant. This is not the same covenant that God entered into with Moses on the mountain. That's a covenant of the law. This is a covenant of relationship. And God calls it an everlasting covenant. And Paul in Galatians is referring to this Abrahamic covenant in what he's talking about here. So verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith, those who've put their trust in God's word, what word? That if you receive Christ as your Savior, God will wash your sins away and give you His righteousness. Therefore, know only that those who are faith are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith, those who not belong to Faith Christian Center, those who have put their faith in God's promise that in Christ our sins are paid for and in Christ God will give you His righteousness, those that put their faith in that promise 
are blessed with Abraham. They're included in this covenant. So it's not whether you were born a Jew or not born a Jew in the body, because that just determines what your physical heritage is. But your spiritual heritage is based on a different birth. It's based on the new birth. And in that new birth, God takes your old nature out and puts a new nature in you that's born out of His Spirit, born of Him. And so God's nature is now in you when you come to Christ. And we receive that by just taking His promise at face value and believing He means what He says and then acting on it enough to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, God's, that He was raised from the dead in Romans 10. says, and you shall be saved. It's just taking him at his word. Brings you into the covenant of Abraham. Not the covenant of Moses on the Mount Sinai. Gets better. Verse 10. For as many are of the works of the law, in other words, as many who are putting their trust for their standing before God by how well they keep the law are under the curse, because there was a curse that went with the law. There was a blessing and a curse. Blessing if you perfectly obeyed it all the time forever, and a curse if you ever missed it once. Hmm. Paul goes on to explain that the law was never given with the understanding that anybody could keep it. But the purpose of the law was given so we realized how good a job we would do on our own. But what we've done is instead of recognizing God's standard as perfection and how far we fall short of it, therefore we need a Savior, what we've done is we've compromised what the law requires. We've lowered the standard so we can meet it. Instead of accepting thou shalt not covet, ever. Shall I just stop there? We've said, well, it can't possibly mean that. What he means is if you basically don't try to take other people's goods. So what we've done is we've lowered the requirement of the law down to a place where we think it's attainable, which means we're still trying to attain it. The problem is God never lowered the standard. God never changed His requirement because the purpose of the requirement was not ever with the understanding anybody could make it other than Christ. But to show us we can't make it on our own so that we would give up trying to make it on our own and receive the free gift of salvation that comes by, by faith that Jesus did it for us. But under the law, if you tried to keep it and you fell short, which you always will, then there's a curse that went with it. And that's the curse he's talking about here. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one should be justified by the law in the sight of God is evidence, for the just shall live by faith not by perfectly keeping the law. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. 
This We love this verse. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for his written curse that is everyone who hangs on the tree. And why did he do that? That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the covenant that you and I enjoy, the covenant relationship we enjoy with God, the covenant standing we have with God is the covenant that God entered into with Abraham that was fulfilled in Christ. Because that covenant required also that everything Abraham had belonged to God and everything God had belonged to Abraham. And God tested him one day in Genesis 22. He says, that boy I had your belief for, now that he's a nice young man and you love him so dearly, so precious to you, I want you to come and offer him to me as a burnt sacrifice. (laughs) But Abraham did that. He brought him to that mountain. He prepared that sacrifice. He laid his son out there and tied him up. And he raised his hand to bring that knife down and an angel stops him and says, Now I know that you fear me, reverence me. Now that I know that I am your most high God. Now I know that you know that I'm your source. Now I know that you have fully entered in to this covenant. How could Abraham do that? If you go into Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see because he hadn't forgotten the first promise. That God says through that boy... That boy, I'm having you believe me for, you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham says, you see it in in Hebrews 11, he believed that even if he had to bring the knife down, that God would have to raise him up again because he so confidently believed that promise that he would perfectly obey God, whatever God required of him, even if it didn't make sense. That's how far he learned to trust in the covenant promise of his God. If we didn't keep the covenant, there was a curse that came with it. And Jesus came to pay the price for that curse for us. Now, here's what we're coming to. We all want the blessing of Abraham. But the blessing of Abraham wasn't under the law. Oh, by the way, we just read who blessed him. It was Melchizedek. said, blessed be Abraham of the Most High God. And then what did... Abram do as a response he gave a tenth of all that he'd been blessed with we love to sing the song Abraham's blessings are mine Abraham's blessings are mine we want the blessing of Abraham but we don't want to give the response that Abraham gave back to God for that blessing has nothing to do with the Old Testament. Abraham's in the New Testament as much as he's in the Old Testament. All right. Even getting quieter in here. Now, that's one point. The one point is that, the, well, the law has passed away. It's, not, you know, it's just in the Old Covenant. The second reason that's often given or is behind it is that tithing really isn't mentioned in the New Testament. It's mentioned in the Old Testament, but it really isn't mentioned in the New Testament. And if it were something we were supposed to do, it would be mentioned in the New Testament. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's go to Matthew 23. 
Again, Jesus is speaking here. Verse 23, whoa, that didn't, that's not a good start. When Jesus starts out saying to somebody, whoa, and he's not talking to a horse here, he's saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. In other words, you pay tithe of different herbs and different uh, plants. And you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. What he's correcting here, he's not saying, look, you don't need to tithe. He's saying, you've tithed, and you've, your confidence is in the fact that you're tithing to the point that you tithe off every little thing you get and that's where your confidence is. It goes back to what we talked about before. Our confidence is not in what we do. We don't tithe. We don't give. We don't do those things because that establishes our standing before God. We do this as a response to seeing who God is and what God's done for us. It's a matter of the heart. And Jesus is correcting, or he's exposing it in them. You're doing outwardly what looks like it's the right thing to do, and yet your heart is not right because the things that are really important to God, you just ignore. And he calls them a hypocrite. But he goes on to say, you need to start doing the things that are important to God, but don't leave the other things undone. In other words, don't stop tithing. All right. Let's go, back to, let's go back to Hebrews 7. You'll know where that is by the time we're done. Hebrews 7. Okay. Now again, this is a comparison that the writer of Hebrews is making. And here he's comparing high priests. He's comparing the high priest of the Mosaic law it was Aaron and his descendants, with a new order of high priests that was started by Melchizedek. And we're not going to have the time to get into all of that. Um, let's go down to verse 4. Now consider this, how this great man, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tithe of the spoils. Indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, which is from their brethren, although they've come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy was not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here mortal men receive tithes, that was the priests under the Mosaic law, received tithes uh, received tithes, but there, Melchizedek, in, in Genesis 14, he received them on whom it was written that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. Here's what he's saying here. He's trying to, again, show that the priesthood that Christ brought in, which is based on this Melchizedek, who we can't have time to go back and look at it, says well, he was without father or mother. He had no genealogy. 
He just always was. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. And so there's a change in the priesthood. Levi, you could trace his lineage back to Jacob and to Isaac and to Abram and back on behind before them. But this Melchizedek, he had no lineage. He just always was. And what he's saying here is he's trying to show that the priesthood of Christ is an eternal forever priesthood and the bringing of that priesthood meant a different type of worship. And what he's saying here is here, Levi, who was the, who was the tribe from which the Levites came, obviously, they were the priests. Under the old covenant, they received the tithes that the people brought. But here the writer of Hebrews is saying, even Levi, because he was in Abraham's genes, even he paid tithes when Abraham paid tithes. Because Levi came out of Abraham down several generations. So here the New Testament is recognizing that tithes have a root back in Abraham, not under the law. All right. Let's go to Romans 4. I referred to this earlier. And here he's again talking about Abraham and, and that Abraham's standing before God as righteous was based on having believed God's promise. He goes on in those wonderful verses starting in 16, 17, and 18, and 19 to really give a very clear description of what faith, his faith was like. And we can learn a lot from that. But that's not our purpose this morning. Let's look here in verse 11. And he, that's Abraham, received the sign of the circumcision which was a seal of the righteous... The circumcision was the mark that God was entering into a covenant with him. Received the sign of circumcision, the seal of righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they were uncircumcised, that righteousness may be, may, may be imputed to them. And the father of the circumcision to those who are not only other circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of the faith of Abraham our father, Abraham while still uncircumcised. So what's that talking about? Abraham is the father of our faith, is what he's saying. Abraham is the father of the salvation based on faith because he was the first that God said to, I'm going to consider you righteous, not because you've been righteous, but because you've trusted in my promise. And that makes him the father of everyone else, spiritual father of everyone else that is saved through that same way. And he says, therefore, everyone that has come to Christ through this method of Abraham's covenant ought to also walk in the same way Abraham walked or do the same things Abraham did. And what was one of the things Abraham did? on the revelation of who the, this Melchizedek was, on the revelation that he came to represent the priest of the Most High God, who had delivered him from all his enemies, and the priest who came to give God's blessing to him, the way Abraham walked, was he responded by honoring that priest and who he represented 
by giving him the first tenth of all. And Paul says here, if we're going to be saved and established in the covenant and family of God through Abraham, then we ought to also respond and react, respond the same way that Abraham responded. Now let's bring this down because we've kind of gone through a lot of technical things. We've gone through a lot of teaching, a lot of things. Um, by the way, Jesus said in John eight thirty nine, he said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But let's get down to what's really important here. This is all important. But the real issue is, this is the wrong question. Again, we so often look at teachings and doctrines in the Bible through this old way of thinking. And the old way of thinking here is basically the tithe is giving up 10% of what I've made. The tithe is something that you're being telling me God requires of me. Show me why I have to do it. Prove it to me. That's the wrong question. That's the wrong point of view. To come and say, well, you know, I know they had to do it in the Old Testament, but why do we don't, show me in the New Testament where we have to do it, already reveals that what I'm really trying to do is as little as I have to, to be okay. And isn't that the mentality of the law? Tell me what I have to do to be accepted in God's eyes, to please Him and to get into heaven. I want to know what I have to do because I don't want to do any more. Because I'm trying to hold on to how much I can get, keep, and give as little as I have to. Kind of like when you go to your accountant or whoever does your taxes and say, look, you know, I want to, do, I want to give the government everything that's owed, but no more. So whatever deductions, whatever shell, whatever you can find, so I don't have to give them any more than I have to, please do that. I'll pay them everything they owed. And that's the mentality of paying taxes, of paying your dues, paying what's required of you. But in the kingdom of God, the mentality is, God, everything's yours. Everything's yours. My life is yours. My body is yours. My time is yours. I'm yours. See, we want to give ourselves to God and hold on to the things we have. I all belong to you, but to see when you do that, everything God has belongs to us. So when my attitude is, well, I don't think I have to do that because that's under the old covenant. I'm really, the question is, why am I trying to find out how little I have to give? How am I trying to find out the minimum of what is required of me? Then we really don't understand who God is yet. And we really don't understand what God has done for us. And we really don't yet understand who we are. Remember as we started this series, I share with you, I don't believe it by any stretch that God is angry at us. He's not. He's a father who corrects his children because he loves us. 
He's a father who will instruct us and show us where our attitudes are wrong. And God doesn't use timeouts. I don't want to get going there or get sidetracked. God will, first of all, challenge us with the truth of his word. He'll expose attitudes we have so we'll see where we are. He's seen it all along. And remember, what God wants more than anything else is us, our hearts. Not for what he can take from us. <laughs> when you really get that revelation, it is funny when we see how we've looked at God in our things. All God's after is you. Because he loves you. So when we ask, all right, is it in the New Testament, is it in the Old Testament? I remember I shared with you, and I'll end with this, the story years ago when we were going through a very difficult financial time because of some decisions I made that just, I didn't pray about them, I didn't, I just made some bad decisions. And right after I got saved, I shared with you the story of the decision I went through, the process we went through about deciding to tithe, because I'd never heard of the tithe before. I mean, when I found out what the tithe was, it was... <sighs> I wasn't raised in churches that even ever mentioned the word tithe. And that was shocking to me, but I had a choice to make. Am I going to do what I see the Word of God says, or am I going to do what, I'm, what I want to do? It was an act of obedience to me at that point. We were going through one of these rough times, and I'd always tithed on the growth. I wanted God's blessing on the money paid to the government, on my part of it at least, so I tithed on the gross. And I remember right where I was, I can still see myself in that car saying, God, would it be all right? Would it be all right if for a while, while we're going through this time, we tithed on the net and, and not on the gross? And I heard inside of me so clearly, the Spirit of God saying, do what you want to do. See, he was calling on what was written in my heart now. He knew what was in my heart. <laughs> Tears started coming down my cheeks. It would have been easier for me if he just said no. Because then it would have been a cold act of obedience. And he said, do what you want. I began to realize, because what's going through my mind is, in my mind, we can't afford where we are right now. I figured out, see, I had figured out. I had figured out. I, I had figured out. I know I'm not the only one here who's ever done that. I have figured out how we could, if I, if I just paid, paid the tithe on the net for a while, I could use that difference to pay this other bill down. I'd figured that out. But when it came in that car, I can still see it. God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to pull anything back that I have committed to you. And that day was a turnaround in our finances. I share that story with you again because 
That's what God was looking for. God was looking for that part of my heart that says, no, no matter what's going on, you're first. Even if it looks like putting you first is going to cause us to go down, I'm going to put you first anyway. If I got to go down, I'm going to go down putting you first. I'd rather walk into heaven having failed, gone broke, having tithed, than walk into heaven having saved all kinds of money, because you can't bring it with you, and not done what I thought was right in his eyes. So the question never entered my mind, is it Old Testament or New Testament? Because it was in my heart to do. And on his way back from defeating King Chartalorum, Melchizedek came to him and said, I am the priest of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and the one who's delivered all your enemies into your hands. Blessed be the Abraham who belongs to the Most High God. And blessed be the God who belongs to Abraham. And out of his heart, out of that revelation, Abraham took the first tenth of what God had brought him and worshipped him as his source of all. So you decide, New Testament, Old Testament. You decide for yourself what you're going to do. Next time, we're going to look at some testimonies, real-life examples of some very famous people that have tithed. Some will surprise you and what God did in their lives because of it and their testimonies of it. Hopefully, we'll be able to share some testimonies from in here. We've started to receive some. And then I'm going to share with you, answer this question. Okay, Pastor. You've laid all this foundation. You've told me all these things. I'm doing it. How come it's not working for me? We'll get into that next week.